You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I think many of you, if not most of you, have probably heard of the practice of daily gratitudes or gratitude journaling, where you list out, say, three things that you are thankful for each day or three successes that you've had, even small ones. And that might be a promotion at work or For some of us on some days these days, it could just be taking a shower or cooking a healthy dinner. The beauty of this practice is that when we take note of these wins, both big and small, we're motivated to keep moving in a positive direction, to continue finding the kind of success that brings us joy. The question is, how can we sustain the successes we want most over the course of our lifetimes? What is a sustainable model for success really look like? And let me just clarify here that success, I know, can be a very loaded word. The journey to success is not always healthy. When we look at many people who are at the top of their fields or who have accomplished great things, we see that they've sometimes sacrificed a whole lot to get where they are, or they may have the title that they want, but they're not living the lives that they want. Right now, you can probably name several people in your life right off the top of your head who seem to quote unquote have it all, but they are so burned out. Or they have big paychecks, but honestly, they kind of hate their jobs. The good news is It doesn't have to be that way. We can walk a path to success that feeds our soul without crushing it. That's part of the title of Brad Stolberg's newest book, The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes, your soul. Brad is an expert on human performance and well-being and is also the author of bestsellers Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. Hey, Brad. Nice to see you today. Hey, Jean. It's great to be talking with you this morning. Nice to be talking with you, too. So let's just dive in and start with this most recent book. As you heard me say, I think we all have examples of the wrong ways to be successful and the right ways to be successful. I 
I'm sure you are no exception to that. So what motivated you to write this book? You know, I write not necessarily because I have something completely figured out, but I write to try to figure it out. That is a huge part of my process is, is being curious and trying to learn for myself. And I, as you mentioned, have experienced success in both different textures, one out of a feeling of compulsion or tightness or narrowness and success from a place of freedom and joy and love. And the result can be the same, but the way that you feel on the journey and when you get there has a completely different texture. The more open values-driven success feels so much better versus the, I've come to call it the if-then kind of success. If I only write a best-selling book, then I'll be content. If I only get promoted to vice president, then I'll eliminate my self-doubts. And um, the great paradox is with that mindset, whether you succeed or fail, you often feel worse than the mindset of, hey, I'm okay where I am. I'm grounded. I have good internal strength and confidence and I can still get better. So again, it's the same point that you're striving towards, but the texture of the path feels much different. As I listen to you describe it, this if-then model of success, first of all, it sounds way too familiar. But secondly, it sounds a lot like what behavioral finance experts call the hedonic or hedonic treadmill. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. I've, I've read it more than I've said it, which basically holds that once we get what we want, we just want more. Yeah. In the book, I write that the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field, meaning that you get to the end zone and you think that you've arrived and maybe you're content for a day, a week, perhaps even a couple of weeks, but then eventually you want more. This is very much natural to our species wiring. When we evolved from apes and primates to humans, food was very scarce. And if you had a big kill on the savanna, you couldn't be content. You had to go out for the next kill because you didn't know when there was going to be a famine. And we've inherited that same wiring, except when we apply it to various 21st century types of pursuits. So not in search of food so we don't starve, but in search of self-validation or promotions or so-called achievements, we get caught up on that hedonic treadmill. It can also be called the arrival fallacy. I really like that term, which is I'll arrive if I just do this thing. And again, the great paradox, I mentioned this earlier, is that the more that you hold that mindset, the less likely you are to arrive. Where if you can release from any notion of needing to arrive, of needing to get something to be content and focus on cultivating fulfillment and contentment right now, then you actually have a better chance of succeeding. So one of the things I know about how humans evolved is that we are very adaptable, right? We adapt to what we have. And it's why when we get a raise, it's not very long until we can't remember how we ever lived on less. How do we get from that if-then model of success to the kind of success that you're talking about, this sustainable model? And maybe before you give us the tactical steps, tell me how it looks. I mean, what's different about it? So I think the most concrete way to explain this is it is a shift from 
goal-driven success to what I call practicing one's core values success. So goal-driven success is something is out there and I really want to go get it. Core values-driven success is these are the things that are most important to me. These are the things that I stand for, that I aspire toward. Here's how I practice these things. And I'm going to show up and practice these things every day. And any goal that I achieve will be a byproduct of living in alignment with my core values. Another way to think about it is there's nothing wrong with goal setting. Goal setting is great. It helps us strive and achieve good things. But rather than set a goal because you crave what you think you'll feel when you get there, set a goal because the process of striving for it or the journey to get there aligns with one's core values. So to make this really concrete, let's say that someone has a core value of autonomy and they define autonomy is control over how I spend my time and energy. That person might not want to pursue a VP role in a big corporate environment because you often don't have control over how you spend your time and energy. So if you're driven towards your core values, you step back and you evaluate every decision you make, is this in alignment with my core values? And your core values are like an internal dashboard. You have full control of whether or not you practice them. So it starts again with a shift from defining success as achieving some external goal to defining success as knowing your core values living in alignment with them and trying to select pursuits that allow you to practice them. I love that you are an expert on human performance as well as well-being. What is it about living this way that improves human performance or how does it change human performance? I think so many of us are used to driving ourselves really hard in order to achieve whatever it is we categorize as greatness. So how does making this switch help us not get burned out? So I'm going to ask you, Gene, and listeners to come along for a little ride on an exercise here. Okay. So if you close your eyes for a minute and you envision a goal that you have been striving for or that you think will make you content... For me, it might be having a number one New York Times bestseller. And now, really tell yourself a story as best that you can. Forget everything I just said and tell yourself a story that you need to have this goal for you to be whole, for you to be happy, for you to feel fulfilled. You have to accomplish this goal. Now, tell yourself a story that you're already enough, you have full control of your core values. And any goal I pursue, including this one, is going to be in alignment with my core values. And your eyes are closed, so you can't see it, but I can. What just happened is in the first scenario, your shoulders went up and your facial muscles tightened. In the second scenario, you dropped your shoulders and you relaxed. And this has such an enormous effect on performance because all this research shows that when we perform from a place of tightness or compulsion, like I have to get this, I have to win, everything's on the line we tend not to perform as well. Versus when we drop our shoulders and we relax, we're more likely to enter a flow state. And the science behind this is complex, but the reasoning is actually quite simple. Because if you are so caught up in needing to get somewhere, you're not actually focused on the thing that you're doing, you're focused on the goal that's 10 yards down the field. That as we said, will always be 10 yards down the field. Whereas if you already feel like you're enough and you already feel like in the moment you're practicing your core values, then you're present for what you're doing. 
So that is the conduit by which performance increases. It takes your mind off of what could happen and worrying about stressing about what could happen and puts it in the present moment doing the thing itself. It also allows you, I would imagine, to enjoy the ride, right? I mean, when we're aiming toward a goal, whether that goal is building a business, buying a home, saving for retirement, whatever, many of these goals, they take years to accomplish. And if you've got your shoulders up the entire way, you're not going to be able to enjoy it. But if you can breathe through it and maybe give yourself a little grace, then I don't know, it seems to me that it would be a lot more fun to at least mark your milestones and take heart and take pleasure in what you're doing in this quest to get to your goal. Absolutely. I mean, the process or the journey towards a goal is 99.9999999% of how we spend our time and energy. Standing on the podium, closing on the house, you know, cashing out the 401k, those events range from one second to two minutes. But the hours and days and weeks and months and years, that's the process of striving towards the goal. So again, being grounded is about firmly situating yourself in that process, being present for it, enjoying it. And the way that you do that is shifting this model of success is something outside of me to success is knowing my core values and trying to build a life where I can practice them. So let's get tactical. If I'm not sure what my core values are, how do I figure it out? I'm so glad that you asked this question. It's a lot of the work that I do in my coaching practice is helping people figure out and define their core values. So there's a few ways to do this. One way is to imagine yourself 10, 15, 20 years down the road, an older, wiser, perhaps kinder, stronger version of yourself. And look back at yourself today, your current younger self. What is that older version of yourself telling you that you ought to stand for? What would make that older version of yourself proud? Another way to do this is to find people that you really admire. They could be leaders, they could be teachers, they could be creatives, they could be business people. And then ask yourself, what do you admire about them? Is it their presence? Is it their authenticity? Is it their vulnerability? Is it their power? Is it their reputation? And often the things that we admire most in other people are the values that we hold in high regard. And then the third way that one can do this is whatever pursuit you're going for, it's really easy to get caught up in the inertia of like where you are in that minute. Think back, why did you start doing this in the first place? Most people, let's say you're building a business, very few people start building businesses because they want to get filthy rich. Some do, but most people, it's because they like building things. It's because of creativity. It's because of working with other people in their community. And that's another really good inroads to figuring out your values. So let's say you come up with a list of values. Health, wisdom, authenticity, vulnerability, respect, trust. I mean, there's hundreds to choose from. Well, that's only the first step. Because as we know from all those posters that hang in boardrooms with big core values, if you don't know what they mean and how to practice them, they're kind of irrelevant. So the second step is then defining these things. So in my case, presence is a really important core value. And I define presence as being fully there for the people and crafts that are important to me at any given moment. How would I practice that? It becomes very concrete. 
phone is off and out of the room starting at 7 p.m. so I can be with my son and my wife. When I'm having a conversation like this, phone, nowhere near me, all browsers are closed. It allows me to be present. So you go from these very kind of high and noble things like presence all the way down to I'm not going to have my phone with me. I'm going to meditate 10 minutes every morning. So these practices then ladder up to these values. What I love about that is when you said presence, I immediately thought, oh, well, there goes the phone. That's the first thing you think. There goes the phone. You got to put the phone down. And the fact that that is how you practice it makes this easier to wrap my brain around, right? That it can be, once you come up with those core values, there can be some common sense to it, right? The autonomy as a core value, if you value this freedom, if you want to be able to construct your own day, well then, yeah, it makes sense that you're not going to work for a big bureaucratic company that wants to demand that you're a butt in a seat, right? Sometimes I think when we hear about practices like this, we make it sound too hard. And it's much more just establishing some good habits. Yeah, and it can be very concrete. And I think that's really important because core values, it sounds lofty, but this is about things that you do day to day. There's a story in the book of a woman I coached. I'm going to call her Donna. That's not her real name. And one of her values was vulnerability. And she was the first woman and the first person of color on the board of this mega international company. And she was really struggling to be vulnerable. She felt like she had to be all buttoned up all the time. And as a result, she felt that she was often being very performative. So in board meetings, when she was speaking to large groups, she couldn't be herself. And the practice that we came up for her was in any given moment, ask yourself, what do I really want to say? And then say something as close to that is comfortable. And sometimes there was still some distance between what she said and what she really wanted to. But she tells the story to me where after a coaching session, she was speaking in front of a large audience in Africa. And she got up on the stage. She was feeling imposter syndrome. She was nervous. And instead of going into her normal routine of altogether executive, she did this practice. She said, well, Donna, what do I really want to say? And the answer was, I don't know how I got here. I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And that's why I need all your help in plotting the path forward for this company. That's why we're all in this together. And she said it. And she said that she just felt like the biggest weight was off her chest. And of course, the reviews from the people at that meeting and presentation were the highest they'd been since she stepped into this role. So again, you go from vulnerability, this big thing that is the stuff of poets and songwriters, down to, oh, I'm having a conversation with my friend and I'm holding something back. Can I use that as a cue to try to say something a little bit more in line with what I actually want to say? Amazing. Yeah. I love the concreteness of all of this. Do you think this is harder for women than it is for men? I think that it depends. And I don't want to paint in two broad strokes. I mean, first off, I'm a man, so I only know my own lived experience. And I can tell you that it's certainly challenging for me. So I'm sure it's challenging for everyone. I do think that particularly in a professional setting, women struggle with double standards that men don't. So if you are vulnerable, then you're too soft. And if you're not vulnerable, then you are too tough. And I think that hopefully that is shifting. And I think that it is going to require strong men to be allies and call bullshit when they see it. 
And it's going to require fierce women to radically be themselves and to live in alignment with their core values. So it's a roundabout way of saying, I, I think it's very contextual and it depends, but I, absolutely, there's no denying there's all sorts of research that shows that in a professional setting, women are often held to a higher standard and men do all kinds of mental gymnastics to try to rationalize it, but it just doesn't make sense. Hey everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking with Brad Stulberg, author of The Practice of Groundedness. Okay, burnout, right? So many of our listeners are facing burnout. What's your best guidance for combating this feeling? I don't even know if it's a feeling or if it's a physical manifestation, right? What's your best guidance for getting through it, both day-to-day and on a broader scale? How much time do we have, Jean? All the time you need. If you can solve this one for us, we'll keep going. All right, I'm going to give him my best shot. So the first thing is to realize that this is really an unprecedented time in many ways, or I guess if it's not unprecedented, it's been over 100 years since 1918 that we've had a moment like this. So the first thing is that while we can always make individual changes and that's important, it has to be accompanied by some self-compassion to acknowledge that we're all in a really tricky situation that there is no playbook for. So of course we're feeling tired Of course, we're feeling restless. Of course, there's some anxiety. And to try to repress that or try to pretend that that's not there doesn't do you a service, doesn't do anyone around you a service. So the first step is to realize that, yeah, this is a moment that we're all in. Give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Really try to be kind to yourself. Don't put all the weight on your shoulders for feeling what you're feeling. Now, the nuance of getting out of burnout is as follows. Sometimes when you are in a rut and you are exhausted, what you actually need to do is shut it down and rest. Other times when you are exhausted and you are feeling like you're in a rut, it's your mind-body system tricking you. And the best thing that you can do is actually nudge yourself to get going. How do you know the difference? 
Yeah, that's the thing. So let me speak to the research behind this first, because it's a little counterintuitive. So the latter strategy is what clinical psychologists call behavioral activation. And it is the gold standard therapeutic way to treat depression. So depression, which is an extreme burnout to the nth degree, says, I need to stay in bed all day. I have no energy to do anything. I'm so tired. And what behavioral activation says is, you can be kind to yourself and you can dislike feeling that way, but the best thing that you can do is just get going, just do something. And I like to pair that with try to take one small action that's in alignment with your core values. Now, your question is the million dollar question. And it's really hard to determine, well, am I actually tired? And is what I actually need to shut everything down? Or am I just kind of stuck in this burnout, languishing inertia? And what I need to do is both gently and firmly push myself toward action. And it gets even more complex, Gene, because oftentimes what people need to do is rest for like a week, maybe two. But then after that week or two of shutdown, they kind of get sucked into the inertia of not moving. And then the strategy shifts to kind of nudge yourself out of it. If there was a silver bullet or some tracker you could wear on your wrist that would tell you which one you need to do, I'd be a wealthy person. But there's not. The only guidance that I can give here is to just pay close attention to what you do and then what you get from it. The second thing that I'd say is if you are going to give that rest a chance, you actually have to rest. You can't be on your phone browsing social media doom scrolling. That's not rest. It can't be, I'm only going to check emails four times a day. That's not rest. It also can't be, I'm going to take time off of work and go crush myself on the Peloton. That's not rest. And the great paradox of rest for someone that's burnt out is rest is really hard. A telltale sign of burnout is you dread work and it's exhausting and it's not something that you want to do. But the minute that you try to stop, you get super anxious and you can't really stop either. So... The first day or two of stepping back and taking a break can be really uncomfortable. So just know that. And you, you kind of have to fight through those feelings and tell yourself, hey, like, I'm going to get to the other side of this. My mind-body system needs this rest. Now, if you've been in a situation where you've kind of shut things down and it's been a week or two and you're sleeping well and you're still feeling this sense of languishing, this slowness, that's when it can be really helpful to turn to that other strategy, what researchers call behavioral activation, I call it mood follows action. So you don't need to feel good to get going. Sometimes you need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. And I can tell you that throughout this pandemic, if I didn't follow this strategy, there would be very few days I did anything productive. Because I've got a young kid at home. I co-parent with my wife. It has been a slog. And there are a lot of days where I just don't want to get going. But I know that if I just put 15 minutes into my workout, if I just sit down to write, and I always tell myself, if after 20 minutes you want to quit or after 15 minutes you want to quit, you can, but just get going. And I have found so often that like the act of starting then turns my mood around. Yeah, I feel the same way, mostly about getting out and exercising, right? During the pandemic, often I have a running partner, but we just moved. And now I'm like searching for a running partner in Philadelphia, if anybody's listening. 10 miles an hour, by the way, or, or 11 would even be better because I'm a little slow. But Wait, 11 miles an hour? You realize that's like a five-minute mile pace. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Wait, you mean 11-minute miles. I mean 11-minute miles. Wow. Who, listeners, Gene is like an Olympic qualifier here. Yes, there we you're go. Gonna, no, you're Gene. You're going to get the fastest runners in Philadelphia. <laughs> Gene came in last in every cross-country meet. But I love to run. And if you do an 11-minute mile, I'm your girl. But I did push myself to get out the door. I pushed, did you even feel if better I was after? Just, yeah, even if I was just walking. Right. Even if I just got out to walk and then run a little bit. Right. Just a little bit of fake it till you make it, I think, is another way to put it. It just it just works for me, at least. Yeah. And, and again, wisdom is knowing what to do when, because sometimes the wise thing to do is not to run, is to take the day off. Sometimes the wise thing is to do is to realize that, hey, your mind body system's telling you that, but it's kind of faking you out. And what you need is you need like a little jump start. And if there wasn't, as I said, if there was an easy answer, we'd all be doing it. So you just have to pay close attention to what you do and what you get out of it. And then, of course, I think anytime we talk about burnout, it is worth mentioning that it is a slippery slope from burnout to clinical anxiety or depression. And if you are having an inability to leave your space because there's so much fear associated with it, or if you are having thoughts that life is meaningless and they're just repetitive, or if you're having thoughts of self-harm, then no amount of getting going is going to help without seeing a professional, be it a therapist or a physician. So I think a lot of people are struggling with this more run-of-the-mill burnout, but I think it's really important to know that if you cross that line, that's okay too. A lot of people are, but then it's time to seek out professional help. 100%. Absolutely. I want to just bring this around to the fact that we are a money podcast. We talk about money on this show. And so I want to try applying the principles of your book to the field of investing. I mean, you've said they transcend all domains, whether you are trying to launch a business or raise a family. So how do we find success as investors? that we can feel good about and that doesn't stress us out? I'm so glad that you asked this question. So believe it or not, my grandfather and my father were both in the investment business. So it's a family business and here I am writing books. But because of that, I may be able to to take a shot at this question that's not totally out of my wheelhouse. So a couple things. The first I'd say is that knowing your core values and how you want to practice them is a great roadmap to how you ought to invest. Because investing for the sake of more or investing for the sake of thrill does not make much sense unless your core value is be as rich as possible and have money or you know be on emotional roller coasters. So if you identify those core values and you ask yourself, what kind of financial setup will it take to enable me to live these core values? then that becomes your investing goal. So much like we talked about with career goals or life goals, it shifts from more, more, more for the sake of more to, hey, I'm going to die one day. Here's the life I want to live. Here's what I'm going to need to have to support it financially. I think the second big theme that applies is this notion of consistency and patience. So in the book, I talk about a concept that many folks that listen to your show might know because y'all are in finance which is this notion of regression to the mean. So if the market's really low, it tends to come back to the mean over time. And if the market's really high, it tends to come back to the mean over time. So rather than chase these incredible results, the goal is to become a better average. 
And I take that concept and I apply it to life. We're all going to have really great days and we're all going to have really crappy days. And if we get too hung up on those days and we allow those days to completely force us to change our strategy of how to live, then our life is going to be a gigantic roller coaster ride. And I have to imagine not being a pro, but I have to imagine the same is true in investing. Whereas if you give yourself some time and space and you say, hey, I want this to work over a decade, not over a month or a year, well, then you don't get as attached to those highs and lows. And you can step back and say, how can my portfolio be a better average over time? I think that is particularly good advice right now as we are seeing new highs in the market, as crypto is in the news, as meme stocks are in the news, and as a whole generation of new investors, young in particular, have come along and signed up for accounts where they're trading individual stocks, which provide that high feeling when you do it right and inspire you to want to get in and keep gaming. And long-term, what we know from history is that it's not a game. Long-term, it is a process. It's a habit. It's, it is. It's, it's knowing that the markets are the mean. And if you do as well as the markets have done historically, for most people, that'll get you to where you need to go. I'm so glad that you said that. I saw a commercial for one of these retail trading apps. I'm not going to name names. And it was quite shocking. I mean, the commercial was like this young adult woman that was bored and then gets this app and starts winning and then calls her dad or her friends and says, you won't believe this. Like, I'm up. You can do this, too. My day's gotten so much more exciting. And for a minute, I thought it was a parody. There was nothing about long-term wealth. There was nothing about having financial autonomy or freedom. It was as if they were selling a casino. And I think that that mindset is so dangerous, not just financially, but also psychologically. Because if you haven't done the work and you haven't been thoughtful about your investment portfolio, then you are just gambling. And that we know is it's not something that's going to lead to long-term well-being, long-term happiness, long-term fulfillment. But again, it's part of this broader culture that's all about more, more, more novelty, stimulation. It's like the opposite of being grounded. It's just constantly chasing bright and shiny objects. So I have no doubt that these platforms will do very well. My fear is that it's going to leave a lot of people not so well. I think your fear is going to be proven out. I don't know when, but I think someday. Brad Stolberg, thank you so much. Great conversation. Where can my listeners find more of you? So the book is available uh, wherever you get books. So it's called The Practice of Groundedness. And the one place that I'm active on social media is Twitter, where my handle is at B Stolberg. And then my website is my name, www.bradstolberg.com. Thank you so much. I hope we'll talk again. Thank you, Jean. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. And her money's Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Good to see you. You too. I loved when Brad walked us through an exercise. I actually love when all of your guests do that from time to time when they 
like, you know, ask you to put yourself in a certain position and think about how you would behave. I love the ones that are more like a therapy session. I do too. And he was totally right. I mean, I did have my eyes closed, so I couldn't see myself in the monitor, but I could feel the anxiety when we moved from the first goal to the second goal, and I could feel it dissipate. I think stepping out of striving for those of us who are strivers is hard. I do. I think it's hard. I think we've been, many of us, sort of just raised to get the A and raised to aim for the next promotion or the next salary increase. And maybe raised is the wrong word because that makes it sound like I'm putting the onus on our parents. And really, I think for a lot of people, a lot of women who are strivers, I think it's internal. I think we're just wired this way. But getting out of that loop is definitely healthier. Absolutely. And something I'm going to aim to do a little bit more of. Yeah. I also think that we're raised with this perception that success doesn't come easy, which I agree with. But I also think that that doesn't mean that success has to be torture. It doesn't have yes. to be difficult. It doesn't have to be a slog. And I think therein lies the difference. You know, you at Her Money are a leader with such heart and such compassion. And I feel like whenever we make a new hire, I always think to myself how thankful I am that that woman is learning from your leadership style, because I think we've all had bosses who make you feel like success should be like a forced march through the desert without water. And that's not the case. You can be Jean Chatsky. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. But I think it's a team ethos, actually. I think you do that as much for me and for the young women on our team as I do it for you. So right back at you. I try to. I love a good exclamation point. Bring them on. Give me all the exclamation points. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Let's take some questions. Our first question comes to us from Jamie A. She writes, Dear Jean and Catherine, I was raised with the mantra of living beneath your means, and I married a fellow saver. But is it possible to save too much? We're in a position of wanting to use our means to purchase a vacation home, but it's difficult for us to part with our funds, yet still feel secure in our future. Some background on us. We live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Welcome back to the area, Jean. And like many in Philly, the vacation home we're considering would be at the Jersey Shore. I'm 45 years old and my husband is 47. We both work full-time and our jobs are stable. We have three daughters, aged 14, 12, and 10. Our annual household income is around $190,000. Additionally, I get an annual average bonus of around $19,000 after tax, and my husband earns around $7,000 as a bonus. We've been contributing to our 401ks consistently over the years. I contribute 10%, and I'm currently exceeding the 2021 limits of 19500 to which my company has a spillover election. The current value of my 401k is $915,000. My husband contributes 14% to his 401k, which has a value of $416,000. 
He also has a 401k with his former employer that has since been converted to an IRA and is valued at $500,000. In addition to our 401ks, we're both fortunate enough to work at companies that still provide a pension. To give you a general sense of their value, if I retire at 60 and collect my pension at 65, I'd receive $7,000 monthly, or I could take a lump sum of $1.3 million. Based on this information, my husband and I both feel as if we're on track with saving for our retirement. In addition to our retirement savings, we also contribute $200 monthly per child into each daughter's 529. Our goal is to pay for two to three years of college per child. The current savings balance in the accounts are as follows, $70,000 for the 14-year-old, $47,000 for the 12-year-old, and $49,000 for the 10-year-old. We also save another $900 a month into a brokerage account and IRA. Our primary brokerage account is valued at $180,000, and our secondary brokerage account is valued at $174,000. My Roth IRA is valued at $42,000, my husband's at $12,000, and he has an additional rollover IRA valued at $45,000. Should I keep going? (laughs) No. No, I mean, I'm just, uh, no. First of all, Jamie, (laughs) let's go back to the very first question that you asked. You asked me, is it possible to save too much? The answer is, yeah, it is. It's not possible to save too much, but it is possible to sit on your savings for so long that you miss out on something that you want to do with your life. And that's what I'm hearing here. So let's just take a step back and think about the benchmarks that we trot out from Fidelity all the time for retirement savers. By the time you're 30, you should have one times your income put aside for retirement. By the time you're 43 times, by the time you're 56 times, by the time you're 68 times, and by the time you retire 10 times, you're already at 10 times. Right, based on the numbers that you gave us, you are you are there and you were there before I got to the pensions. You were there before I got to the money in additional brokerage accounts and IRAs. You're there. And if what you want to do right now is purchase a vacation home where you can hang out with those kids of yours. I think you should absolutely do it. Now, as you know, or as I think you know, I have a house at the Jersey Shore. The property values at the Jersey Shore are crazy right now, just like they are in many places in the United States. But shop carefully. And as for where you'd get that down payment from, I might just look at your brokerage accounts, depending on how much capital gains you've got. You mentioned in the portion of the letter that I didn't let Catherine get to that you also have some RSUs, company stock. You could look there to pull the down payment. There's so many different places that you could get the down payment from. Or you could just pull back on your savings a little bit because clearly you are funneling a lot of money into savings each and every month. I know that you are not comfortable with a high mortgage payment, so you're considering a hefty down payment. 
look very, very carefully at the fact that mortgage rates are so low right now. It may be beneficial and in your better interest to take more of a mortgage and just prepay on it over time because money invested or money that you leave in those RSUs if you're able to convert them down the road, could earn you a better return than paying two-ish, three-ish percent on a mortgage. It might be slightly higher because it's a vacation home. And the other thing to keep in mind is that a property, particularly a vacation property, has rental value. If you decide that you aren't comfortable with the amount of money that you're spending on this vacation property, you can rent it out for three, four weeks during the summer. You can rent it out during the off season and you can make a decent part of your money back. So I would encourage you to loosen the reins a little bit. I'd encourage you to really have some fun and spend the time there with your kids. And if you don't have a financial advisor, you need one. You're doing all the right things, but you should have somebody looking over all of this just to help you move the levers as far as where to get the money to pay for college, where to get the money for retirement, which funds to withdraw first when you get there. And I would highly suggest that with this level of wealth, you put that into the equation. That's amazing advice, Jean. I was thinking the exact same thing with the financial planner, because to me, it sounds like that's a lot of different accounts turning, which is great because you're fully diversified. You've got a lot of eggs in different baskets, but I feel like I might lose the reins on where a lot of that stuff is because our listeners didn't hear several more examples of accounts that she cited. So that's a lot going on. And then my other recommendation would be to listen to our episode 240 called Die with Zero, all about enjoying your money now and enjoying what you've worked so hard for and and not being afraid that you won't have enough because chances are you will. Absolutely. But you're killing it, Jamie. You're really doing a great job. So way to go. Yeah. So amazing. Our next question comes to us from Sam H. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. Thank you so much for your show and the mailbag section. This is a semi-urgent topic, though I'm sure you get these all the time. I have an overseas move for graduate school coming up in two weeks, and I'm not sure what to do with my car. I'll be gone for about 14 months. I live in an area where my car is a necessity, and I will be returning to the area. I own the car outright, and I just checked on Kelly Blue Book, and I can sell it for about twelve grand. I bought it for fifteen thousand five hundred, including tax, last year. I am wavering among these decisions: selling it, using the money to fund living expenses while I'm a student, and saving a few thousand to buy a car upon my return. Keeping it and having my partner use it as a backup car, and he would pay for the upkeep, though he says I would be responsible for the extra car fee. Not sure how much, maybe $50 a month from our landlords. Or keeping it and letting a good friend use it as her car is soon to die and she'd be responsible for the upkeep and possibly also having her rent it out on Turo or something similar as a way to make some extra cash on it. My partner and I live in the woods, so I'm concerned if it's used merely as a backup car that animals might make a mess of it. 
I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you so much for your great show and valuable insights and encouragement. Wow. Well, first of all, Sam, congratulations on graduate school. I hope you're going somewhere wonderful overseas. I keep the car. I think I'd keep the car because we're in the middle of a pandemic and who knows exactly what's going to happen in the next 14 months. I just had a conversation before I came in here to do this podcast with a student who was talking about how semesters abroad really got shut down during the first part of the pandemic. And I don't know if that's your situation. I certainly wouldn't want to see that happen to you. But right now is a very, very difficult time to buy a car. If you sold it, you might be able to get more out of it than you think you could get. But by the same token, it could be really, really difficult to buy another one and more expensive to buy another one when you need it. I think I'm going with option number three. I'd keep it. I'd let your good friend use it. I might see if your good friend would pay you for the use of it if her car is about to die. Maybe she could do a kind of a a lease or a, a de facto lease on your car. Just make sure all the insurance coverages are in place for her to drive the car. But I think I'm more comfortable with that than her renting it out to people that you don't know in order to make some money on it. And as far as those animals making a mess of it, that definitely would not have been an item on my radar. But for that reason alone, I don't think you should keep it in the woods. And I'm trying to envision what it means that animals would make a mess of it. I'm thinking raccoons. What are you thinking? Okay, so I'm a girl who grew up in the middle of the woods, and we never had this happen. So I honestly don't know what you're talking about. But if if that maybe there's some animal that is not native to Alabama, but raccoons don't want your car. Raccoons want your lunch. <laughs> raccoons want your lunch. But I know people in Florida who got raccoons in their attic and the raccoons destroyed the house. Like raccoons can have at it with your upholstery because they have hands, basically. <laughs> and and they just rip stuff apart. No, they do. They have big nails and they are incredibly destructive. So let's just assume we're talking about raccoons. Raccoons get into the car. Raccoons could open the doors. Could be a thing. Okay. So my vote is also the same as you keep it. I think if your friend wants to use it, I have some hesitations about the Turo idea. I think you need a separate insurance policy for that. And then If you're not the one renting it out on Turo, then is this like three different layers of insurance that you would need? So that's a bit of a quagmire there. But then I also think just keeping it covered, like a nice cover for a car that envelops the whole car, like a nice canvas or like a a tarp material that goes around the car and protects it, they're about two or $300. So that's also an option if you just want to cover it. 14 months is not that long. And I think you're going to be back soon and you're going to want the reliable car that you've grown to love. And already paid for. Exactly. Thank you, Jean. Thanks so much, Catherine. In today's Thrive, is your job offer really the total package? At HerMoney.com this week, we walk you through how to know if your job's benefits are up to par. 
Anytime you head into a job interview, you are probably more than ready to dive into a salary conversation. By the time you're sitting across from the hiring manager, you've read all the advice, you're armed with statistics and industry information, and hopefully a whole bunch of confidence. But are you ready to discuss benefits? Sure, the amount that you receive as part of your paycheck is incredibly important, but it's not everything. You've got to consider health benefits, retirement benefits, company culture, and so much more. So first, calculate the value of the benefits package. One immediate way to see your benefits value is to calculate the benefit load. Essentially, you assign a dollar amount to all the benefits you're being offered Add that to your salary, and that way you arrive at a final number. To do this, add up everything the company is giving you, contributions to health care, a 401k or 403b match, contributions to a pension, rare, but it does happen, a company car, a cell phone, anything else that has an assignable dollar value. Benefit calculators like the one at salary.com can easily help you do this. There's no math required on your end. You just plug in your numbers under the benefits tab. Once you've got your calculation in hand, It's time to list all of those things that you can't put a dollar value on, flexible schedules, the number of days PTO or vacation you're being offered, company retreats, corporate culture. Also, size matters, but it isn't everything. Often the benefits at larger organizations can be better, but that doesn't mean you should immediately discount a smaller firm. Essentially, larger companies are often able to secure better deals on things like healthcare because they have more buying power. The more people at a firm, the deeper the discount they're able to secure from insurance companies, which makes it more likely they could cover 100% of your insurance premiums. Larger firms are also more likely to offer things like disability insurance, on-site childcare, a low-cost gym. But smaller companies often go to great lengths to stay competitive, offering flexible schedules, reimbursements for things like insurance costs or health and wellness classes. The only way to know for sure what you're getting is to dig deep with your HR rep and your hiring manager and ask them for an extensive rundown on exactly what benefits will be provided to you and when you're eligible for each of them. In other words, benefits are a big deal. So even if your new boss is flashing big bucks, bite your tongue before saying yes until you've inspected everything on the table. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Brad Stulberg for sharing his thoughts on how we can all find the success we're seeking while never losing sight of who we are. It's so nice to hear that we all have a path to climb the ladder while still holding on to our roots. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 